0: Turn once again, please, in your copy of God's Word to the prophecy of Zechariah. If you're new to the Bible, then just go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and turn back two books to Malachi to Zechariah. If you missed last Lord's Day, I would ask that you please go back and catch it because the sermon set up everything that we will be doing in this series on Zechariah. <clears throat> the historical information that you need and so forth was, was, uh, was preached in that service. We'll read this morning in chapter 1 from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. But first, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we have seen just this morning the covenant faithfulness of our God. We have seen the promise fulfilled that Thou art a God who works through Christian homes and families and brings children and grandchildren to Thyself. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that even now as the Word of God is proclaimed, that we would be very concerned that our children learn these truths that we learn these truths, that they learn these truths, and especially of the presence of Christ with, with his people. Humble us, Heavenly Father, before the truths and realities that we find in the book of Zechariah, and especially fill our hearts with the hope that it inspires, that hope that dwells within, within our hearts by faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that even though the people of God will be encouraged, that those who are still in the world, with all of its depressing worldview, will be drawn to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can redeem sinners. There is no other. And Father, we ask Thy blessing upon us now as we turn to this portion of Scripture, inspired of Thee unusual in form, but calling upon us to think and meditate upon thy truth. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Chapter 1 of Zechariah, beginning with verse 7. This is the Word of God. On the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem." And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, repent. This was the word of the first six verses of Zechariah as we saw last time the first message that the prophet Zechariah was called to bring to the people is that they must repent of their spiritual lethargy and their lack of zeal for the kingdom of God. And so the word of the Lord to us also is to repent of spiritual lethargy and for our lack of zeal for the kingdom of God. They must make God's priorities their priorities. They must get up, build the temple, Because God is about to renew among them the messianic hope. And hope, that's the prevailing message of Zechariah, unrepentant hearts cannot be filled to overflowing with hope. Hence, the preaching of repentance must be first. Now the prophet can bring the message of hope that characterizes the book. And he does that with a series of eight visions that the Lord has brought to him, which he writes down for our benefit Encouraging visions that we might have hope before us as we live our lives for Him. We're only looking at two today, but some think these two are actually one, that beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, you have an addendum. In any case, they're very closely related. Now, these visions are very unusual to us. The form of literature is unusual. This is not how we generally would speak or think, but you see, it's inviting contemplation. It's inviting meditation. Gerhardus Voss somewhere rightly said that, that the Bible was a book full of dramatic interest. And I'm so glad that it is. You have history. You have apocalypse. You have, you have gospel. You have epistle. You have. It's a book filled with dramatic interest. And so he wants to engage our minds and our hearts by bringing the record of these visions that we have in this chapter. These visions were seen months after the opening sermon, and the day, we know this from the time marker there in verse 7 and 8, the day on which these visions we see this morning were revealed was the day that two months earlier, the building of the house of the Lord was resumed. We know that from Haggai one fourteen and 15 and chapter 2, verse 18. And it was the day also in which Haggai received the prophecy of the shaking of heaven and earth of the destruction of the Gentile nations and the establishment of a rule that was greater than Zerubbabel the governor, the Messiah who was to come. And so these visions were to encourage God's repentant people in the truth that God had not forsaken them, though they are lowly, though they are despised by the world. God will not forsake his people. He will not forsake his covenant. He will not forsake his heritage. He will never leave his people and will never abandon his purpose of grace. There's no wretched Pelagianism here. It's all of grace from first to last. Now, the first thing we need to do is just survey the scene. So that's first, surveying the scene. What did the prophet see? Well, this prophet sees, it's a vision, not a dream, that God gave him. He sees a rider of a red horse among the myrtle trees, literally translated, it would be in the bottom. Here it's translated in your ESV, in the glen. Look, behold, and he sees this rider astride a red horse. We later learn that the rider is identified as the angel of the Lord. And then there's another angel, however, not to be identified with the angel of the Lord, who is the interpreting angel. And behind the rider on the red horse are other horses with their riders, though the riders are not mentioned because the rider on the red horse is the truly significant figure. They are sent on a reconnoitering expedition throughout the earth. They are on patrol. And the prophet asks in verses 9 and 10, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord, Jehovah, has sent to patrol the earth. And then in verses 14 through 17, we have God's purpose for this vision. God's meaning in it all. What he's really trying to strike home to the hearts and lives of the people of God and even us this morning. And this the second night vision or the addendum in 18 through 21 illustrates the theme of the first night vision, for here we have four horns symbolizing power that are opposed to the people of God, and yet they are destroyed by the smiths or artisans that God raises up. Well, that's what he sees. What does it mean? Well, that's second, expounding the vision. Expounding the vision. What does this vision mean? So we begin to look at the components here. We first see the myrtle trees. Now myrtle trees in the ancient Near East were very beautiful. I've not seen them personally, but I did look them up. I read a good deal about them. You can see them. It's one of the benefits, I suppose, of internet. You can actually look at myrtle trees. So commonly found in Palestine, it can raise to 30 feet in height, having truly beautiful, very unusual white flowers. And what I couldn't tell from the internet is that it has a wonderful smelling berry that yields a very fragrant oil. And it's interesting, you know, that throughout the Old Testament in various places, when God would speak of the blessing that He would bring upon His people, either then or in the future, pointing into the eternal state, sometimes He references the myrtle trees. Just for example, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 12 and 13, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains of the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Interestingly, Esther's Hebrew name is Myrtle. It's not exactly myrtle, that is to say that's the way we anglicize it, but it's hadas or hadassah. The myrtle branches were used in the construction of the, the booths in which they would stay during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so given the divine exposition in verses 14 through 17, there really can be little if any doubt that the myrtle trees way down there in the bottom represent the people of God, the covenant people of God, in all of their beauty as the Lord sees them, but despised by the world. So the myrtle trees were in the bottom. The term usually refers to the depths of the sea, but here, lowly, perhaps a deep ravine. In other words, almost out of sight. Because they are the humiliated people of God and they are the humbled people of God. And do you remember what God says about being with his humble people in Isaiah chapter 57, 15, and 16? For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a text. To parallel with this one. Because you see, visibly speaking, what is the church compared to the nations that surround her? Lowly, near extinction, despised, in the ravine, almost undetectable on the world scene, not great, not grand, not influential as the world counts influence. Thus, this is the struggling, suffering church of God, the people of God. And T.V. Moore also indicates to us that the berry of the myrtle, he says, gives its richest fragrance only when bruised. It is possible that that fact plays a part in the description that we have here. But the church in her Old Testament form as we have it here, remember there is one people of God through all the ages the church in her Old Testament form was not alone in the midst of the church that broken church, that bruised church, that dejected church, apparently insignificant church, right there in the midst is the rider on the red horse. So who is this rider on the red horse? Well It's distinguished from the interpreting angel, as we have seen. The one among the myrtle trees answers the interpreting angel. And in verse 12, the rider on the red horse is identified as the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, had we time, I've actually done this in classes here, but had we time, we could begin to trace this from Genesis and into Exodus and into Joshua and all the way through to Malachi. Had we time to trace it through the Old Testament Scriptures, we would find that the angel of the one Lord is one who is distinguished from the Lord, but also completely identified with the Lord. To Him, divine attributes are ascribed, and so, he is not a created being, an angel in that sense. Here, angel does not mean created being, but he is described in Malachi as the messenger. The word messenger and angel are the same. The messenger of the covenant. In Genesis thirty-one thirteen, just for an example, the angel of the Lord is an object of worship. I am the God of Bethel, says the angel of the Lord. And so, who is this? Well, the Old Testament is unintelligible apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. You cannot understand Old or New Testament apart from God's revelation of Himself as triune. And this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in this vision. This is a pre-incarnate Christophany. This is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before he became incarnate, born of a virgin, that he might die for our sins. Who then is the rider on the red horse? The rider on the red horse is the second person of the Trinity who would become flesh for us. Who is the rider of the red horse down in the bottom with his precious people, the persecuted people, the despised people of God? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the midst of the myrtle trees, in the midst of the beautiful to him but despised by the world. Myrtle trees way down there in the bottom in the most insignificant place as the world Counts significance. As for the colors, just to say in passing, the colors of the horses probably indicate the work that they were to accomplish, so that red represents, as it often does in Scripture, the judgment of God, the sorrow, a mixture of red and white, and the white a symbol of victory, as we saw in chapter 6, verse 2 of the book of Revelation. So, these other horses are sent on this reconnoitering mission, And in verses 10 and 11, we read, So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So he sent a patrol throughout the earth, possibly the entire earth, or perhaps it means something more localized. The nations that have persecuted the people of God The message with which they return is essentially that everything is well with the nations, that the nations are at rest. Wait, how can that be? The nations have persecuted the people of God. The nations are the ones that carry them into captivity. How can it be that the nations are at rest? They are there under the judgment of God, and yet they seem to be at rest. They seem to be at peace. All seems to be well. How can that be? TV Moore again puts the issue very plainly. But Judah, that's them, now the nations, now here's God's people, but Judah was lying in desolation, Jerusalem in ruins, and the temple but partially rebuilt. Here was a state of facts that seemed to contradict the promises of God to his people and the threatenings of God to his enemies, and hence that tended to depress the one with doubt and to inflate the other with pride. So here are the people of God. What is happening here? Why are not the nations judged for the way in which they have treated, indeed, ultimately, Christ himself, the Messiah himself, in the way in which they have treated us? And yet, the people of God are here, and the nations seem to be at rest this seems to contradict God's promises to His people. The ultimate word there is seems to contradict. You know, how often I have known people who have professed faith in Christ, and when things get hard and they go through things that they cannot understand, all of a sudden they turn on God. God doesn't love them. God never cared for them. God isn't who He said He was. God didn't keep his promises, that God can't exist, and they walk off from the faith because they were never truly his. The people of God know to trust him no matter what, that we walk by faith and not by sight, and we need God's interpretation of his world and what he is doing in order to walk faithfully. Did I not tell you that the book of Zechariah is all about hope, filling the hearts of the people of God with hope, which means certainty, Please get rid of this idea, oh, I hope so, maybe it will happen. Hope in the Bible is always certain. It is what is based upon the promises of God. Repentant and hopeful hearts, repentant hearts are filled with a certainty of faith. Repentant hearts live upon the promises of God. In other words, repentant hearts live and hang upon His Word. They live as much as is possible for us in this fallen world upon God's own revealed point of view. You and I need to live on what God has revealed is His point of view in this world in which we live. So people, this is the divine perspective. And I must tell you, I I couldn't help but think of Henry V, Act 3, when I was reading this passage. It just came to mind, the bedraggled, outnumbered, humanly speaking, certain to lose against the greatest numbers of knights and soldiers that the king of France could produce. But then Henry says, we are in God's hands, brother, not in theirs. March to the bridge, it now draws toward night. Beyond the river we'll encamp ourselves, and on tomorrow bid them march away. How much more can we say Take up the full armor of God, believe his word, no matter the foe, in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, how important it is, how essential to live on the divine perspective that not only we will win, but we have won in Christ. Then, as we see this vision unfold, the truly amazing takes place. The angel of Jehovah, whom we have identified as the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Christophany, appearance of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, the messenger of the covenant, the Son of God, who would die for his people, who would disarm his and our enemies and foes, who would rise and ascend anticipating this victory, the angel of Jehovah himself intercedes for his own people. And he cries out, how long? that speaks of faith in the future deliverance of the people of God. It's not how long. I can't see why you're not doing something right now, but it's how long because I know it's coming. I know it's going to happen. How long? I couldn't help but think of of the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 who cry out, How long, O God, holy and true, wilt thou not avenge thine own elect? And so, confidently appealing to, and get this, he appeals once again to Yahweh Sabaoth, to the Lord of hosts, to the Lord of armies. That expression that is used 53 times in this little book of Zechariah, confidently appealing to the Lord of hosts. He bolsters their consolation and their confidence And he responds in verse 13. God says, well, let's read 12 and 13. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So that in all of their desperate need, in all of their feebleness, in all of their confusion, Christ intercedes for them, verse 12. Gives them comforting words, verse 13. And let me say, in all of your desperate need, Christian, in all of your feebleness, in all of your confusion, Christ intercedes for you. He intercedes for us. One people of God through the ages. And so in this intercession, the angel of the Lord complains of the delay. In other words, he calls for the sure vindication of the church that will come. And he intercedes for mercy because all through this is the mediation of Christ. And his mediation, his intercession, will see us through. And we are all one party in the covenant when we are before the Lord in our covenant head, Jesus Christ. His covenant mercies are secure for us. So what is true of God's people is true of you also. Listen, what is true of God's people is also true for you individually as a believer in Christ. Elected by God, redeemed by the Son, It is true for you. We share God's, Christ's destiny. His entire body will be with him in the end. Not one of his blood-bought saints will be lost. And so we can turn to a place like Romans 8, and we see what to expect as children of God in this world. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, Nakedness, peril, sword, as are experienced by many of God's people in the world even now. And we turn to verse 31 of Romans 8, What shall we then say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? This is God's point of view. So never can it be said that Christ came to save a soul and failed. And Satan will never be able to say, God elected that sinner Christ died for that sinner. The Holy Spirit called that sinner. Christ interceded for that sinner, but I will have him in hell. He will never be able to say that. You see, people of God, just leave, leave me when I have God's perspective on it all. Leave me there in the bottom, among the myrtle trees, with the rider on the red horse, with Christ my intercessor, That's where I really want to be. But you see, the problem that we often face in the church today is that many don't want to be down there in the bottom, insignificant in the world's eyes. They don't want to be different from the world. They want to amalgamate with the world. They want to culturally accommodate in order to win the world. And when that happens, the world wins the church. We don't win the world. Jay Gordon Holcroft wrote a book that I've had in my library for years it needs to be republished. He was missionary in Korea, well traveled through the east. Writes a book about a neglected part of church history in which we can find out very clearly the widespread of Christianity from the 2nd century on through many centuries thereafter in China and Mongolia and Indonesia even to the outskirts of Japan at least portions of it what happened? where did it go? and Holcroft traces out the history from various sources what happened was the church amalgamated oh all through India which had a powerful Christian witness and testimony They amalgamated with the world. And he said it led to rejection, to destruction, and to disappearance. God will always have his church, he will always have his people. But you had this widely powerful gospel preaching church and they disappeared because they little by little amalgamated with the world. Calvin writes in one of his sermons, not on this text, but on the suffering persecution of the people of Christ. Listen to what he said. And this is in the time of the Protestant Reformation. We're having a a Reformation conference in October. Are we so sensitive that we cannot bear to suffer? asks Calvin. In that case, we must turn our backs on God's grace through which He has called us to the hope of salvation. For to belong to Jesus Christ and to be trained by much affliction are two inseparable things. To be made like God's Son is something we should value much more than we do. The world, of course, thinks it a reproach to suffer on account of the gospel. Since, however, we know that the unbelievers are blind, should our eyes not be better than theirs? It is shameful to suffer at the hands of those who sit in the seat of judges, yet Paul shows by his own example that we may glory in Christ's sufferings, for by these marks God recognizes us as his people. Moreover, we remember Luke's comment regarding Peter and John, that they rejoice to be thought worthy of bearing the shame and disgrace for the name of Christ, Acts 5.54. There you have two contradictory ideas, shame and worthiness, because the world in its folly, judges irrationally, and thus represents God's glory as dishonor. For our part, let us not refuse to suffer abuse in the world's eyes, that we may be honored before God and his angels. It's all a matter of being God-centered rather than man-centered, Christ-centered rather than self-centered. Well, we must move on. The third thing, the divine purpose of the vision. And let me just give you these things. God says, I'm giving you this vision because I want you to see some things. I want you to understand some things in the heart. The purpose of this vision, the first is I want you to understand that I'm a jealous God. And so in verse 14, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. In the Hebrew, it's jealous I am. Emphasizing he's jealous for his people. Which means that he's zealous to vindicate them. That he is jealous of the exclusive affection of his people. It's a holy jealousy. Infinitely great is his love for his people that will not let us go. God says, I'm jealous for you. Thank God he is. For we're so fickle and feeble. Where would we be without God's holy jealousy keeping us in the way? But also, among the purposes of this vision, he wants you to understand God will yet punish his enemies, the enemies of his church. And so in verse 15, am I and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. Now, they did God's bidding, ultimately, accomplishing His purpose, the wrath of men shall praise Him. They sent, I'm talking about this attitude through history, they sent His Son to the cross, but through it the Lord had decreed to save His people, and yet sinners, when they sin, are fully and completely responsible for their own sin. So just as we see in the cross, we have here also the mystery of providence. Those who mocked and taunted and furthered the suffering of the people of God will be eternally punished if they are not first converted. And God will judge the nations and the Lord Himself will rise up. And this is the point also of the following night vision or appendix in verses 18 through 21 when He says to us, you've got to get into your heart No matter how low you are down there, you myrtle trees, despised of the world, not seen in all of your beauty the way I see you, you've got to get in your heart the knowledge of the truth that the church is going to triumph. So he saw these four horns representing the power of the world against the church, ruthless and cruel, that scattered the people of God. When you think of the horns, you have to think of the animal too. He's not saying think of horns alone. So you think of rams probably, rams with their great horns butting and, and killing and cruel and angry, and the ram's horns are some other beast. God's smiths then are sent, and they do the job that the Lord ordains through history to remove the persecutors. As Kleefoth says, as quoted in Kyle and Delich, the four smiths symbolize the instruments of the divine omnipotence by which the imperial power in its several historical forms is overthrown. And so the judgments of God are in history. He overthrows those who persecute the people of God. The Lord takes note of everyone who would destroy His people. And He takes note of His people who are persecuted. As one of the old writers says, for every horn there was a cleaving artificer to beat it down. For every enemy there was an antagonizing instrument to counteract it already provided by God. You see, God really is the Lord of history. He really is working in this world that we see to be so chaotic. And I want you to notice in verse 21 the word terrify. He says in verse 21, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah and to scatter it. Now, I find the word terrifying, terrifying, frankly, because this is God the infinite, eternal God. This is Jehovah speaking. This is the Lord of armies saying that He will terrify those who have mistreated and abused God's people. If you're here and you're lost, you're in one of these two groups. You're either either lost or you're saved. You're either in the nations that will perish, those who raise their 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 voices and hands and hearts against the church or you are a part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ which is true of you because the promise is we the people of God through Christ our lord though we are lowly now and humiliated now we're going to share in the exaltation of our lord but if you do not know Christ you will be terrified And that terrifying judgment of God will be forever. So the church will eternally prosper, as we read in verses 16 and 17. Speaking of the time frame, then I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord shall again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem Old Testament references, however, that can be applied to the church in her prosperity, with which God says he will overthrow his enemies ultimately. So, the enemies of God's covenant people that so persecuted that child of God that he could not even lift up his head, this world system shall be destroyed, and the kingdom of God will be built on its ruins, and God's promises are sure, and his victory is certain. And this is a word that needs to be heard by the Chinese Communist Party. And it needs to be heard in the leadership in Iran. And it needs to be heard in Saudi Arabia. And it needs to be heard in Washington, D.C. God says, You touch the church. And I will touch you. I will bring judgment. And eventually that judgment will be when Jesus Christ comes again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not His gospel, as we read in the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, but to be admired of His saints. Now let me bring some concluding inferences. This is such a rich passage and I'm going through so quickly. But let me just give you a few inferences. Yes, I said these things. I want to underscore them. The first inference is this. The church, often despised, maligned, apparently weak and faltering, has an unseen glory in her midst. Even now, as we gather in worship this morning, an unseen glory in her midst. The glory of the church is not in her programs. It's not in her growth rate. It's not in, as Dabney wrote somewhere, a selfish and morbid craving for excitement No, the glory of the church is Christ in her midst. Maybe this very small little house church meeting quietly in Saudi Arabia, but where two or three are gathered in my name there. Am I in the midst of her? The red rider on the horse is there in the midst. As Thomas Peck put it, the power and influence of the church does not depend upon her numbers, but upon her character. And I would add, her character is largely dependent upon the holiness of life in her members that comes from recognizing that Christ is in our midst. Second thing, we have all to live with an unrealized eschatology the promises of God, and we can't see how they're coming, how they're being fulfilled. All of us as Christians live there. But things are not what they seem when things are dark, is not God still sovereign? Is not Christ still victorious? Is it not so that God's purpose never fails? God does not forsake His people. We may be in a deep ravine now, deeply humiliated, but we share in the victory of the one that was humiliated on the cross, who rose from the dead, who intercedes for His people, and will come again in glory. He is the writer on the red horse. I could not help but think of Isaiah 63, in which we read, "'Who is he who comes from Edom, in crimsoned garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red in your garments, like his who treads the winepress?' I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. Therefore, that soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Third thing, Christ, the intercessor in verse 12, is your intercessor who is interceding for you, people of God, believer, right now. R.L. Dabney in his systematic theology puts it beautifully. His intercession is a perpetual holding up of his own righteousness on behalf of his people by a perpetual pleading in order that he may on that ground have this viceroyal power of succoring all their wants. And then he goes on to say, the church in his immediate, is his immediate domain. Its members are his citizens and for their benefit his powers are all wielded. Remember that. When you're going through things that are inexplicable to you, you just don't see how God's promises are working for your good. They are. And Christ is your intercessor. His intercession cannot fail. And then the final thing, the church has triumphed in Christ already. We have been raised in His resurrection. We will be raised at the end. The temple pointed to a greater reality than than stones and even typology. There will be a fuller, ampler fulfillment of these promises. God's promises are sure. Christ's victory is certain. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure for lo, His doom is sure. One little word. One little word shall fell him. Thank God. Praise be to his name. Christ, the rider on the red horse, dwells with us, dwells in the midst of of His people. Did I not tell you Zechariah was all about hope? Be filled with hope, people of God. Your Lord reigns. Amen and amen.